This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney. I want to start things off today by wishing everyone a very happy new year. I know many of you will be listening to this episode and you're thinking, wait, it's already like a a week or more into the new year. But this actually is the first episode that dropped in 2019. The last one was on New Year's Eve. Uh, Before that was Christmas Eve. And if you actually haven't listened to either of those two because of the holidays, I would highly recommend it. The one on Christmas Eve was on the famous Christmas truce of 1914 in World War I when many of the troops on opposing sides came out of their bunkers, shook hands, played soccer, exchanged gifts, and everything on Christmas. It's a really kind of cool story. The one on New Year's Eve was actually about a spotlight episode on a terrorist group known as FARC. And they're actually kind of a group that's near and dear to me because as I'm writing my dissertation, which many of you know I'm doing right now for my PhD, FARC is one of the groups that I'm specifically looking at. So I've been doing a lot of research on them. It's a really interesting group in Colombia right now. Uh, Actually, they just laid down their arms not that long ago. So if you're interested in either of those two episodes, please go back and check them out. But with the first episode of 2019, I wanted to do something a little bit different. We're going to, instead of talking about a current event or a group or anything, we're going to actually just talk about the United States for a little bit. Uh, The United States is a very unique country in the world. Actually, there's kind of a running joke in political science that the United States is so unique that it often needs to be left out of data sets. Whenever you're running research and you're running statistical numbers on things, a lot of times the United States becomes an outlier and actually gets removed from data sets. It's actually kind of a, exactly kind of a running inside joke to political scientists. Uh, but there's actually some reasons why the United States is so different. And a lot of it goes back to how the United States developed in our early international relations issues, the way that we handled our, our own business, the way that we handled dealing with other countries. And so I wanted to kind of talk about how the United States has developed over the years, uh, particularly those early years, and how that has kind of led to the unique situation that we're in today, that really when we talk about the United States, whether we're talking domestic politics or international politics, you can't really treat the country the same that you do a lot of other countries across Europe, even some of the Western developed countries, but also the rest of the world. So let's go ahead and uh, start talking about how the United States got started. So Obviously, I'm assuming most of you know the story, 1776, the American Revolution, splitting from the United Kingdom, Great Britain. But when the United States became independent, it was very far away from all the other great powers. And I mean that very geographically. In other words, physical distance. The United States was simply just farther away from the other major powers in the world at the time, who were England, France, other European states, We were just very far apart. We were very set apart from the other great powers in the world. And because of this, we actually kind of developed with a lot of 
or I should say without much outside assistance or outside interference. And we actually didn't really need it because we had a lot of open territory, especially moving westward. There were a lot of natural resources. And so we didn't need to have some of these close ties to other countries for their assistance for trade purposes. But we also were so far away that it was just difficult to have any sort of influence or interference from them either. So the United States developed very uniquely in the sense that we were I don't want to say isolated, but we kind of were. It was very independent. Uh, isolated is probably a little bit too strong of a word. We did have some ties. Obviously, you know, England and France in particular had people here in the States on this continent, but there was very little of that. We were actually a very independent country, much more so than any of the other major powers. When you think about the other major powers at the time, we're thinking mostly Europe, and they developed in very close proximity to one another, constantly fighting, constantly interfering, uh, having very extensive international relations. And the United States had none of that. Now, in addition here, too, there was a very small divide, very, like ideologically speaking, in the United States between what you might consider the powerful and the elite in society and then the weak in society, the ones who don't have the power. And ideologically speaking, in terms of what we wanted to do, especially on the international stage, but also even domestically, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the two. And part of this, you can chalk it up to the United States being a brand new country, independent. There weren't a lot of hang-ups and tie-ups that were causing problems, but we did have this very small divide. So the weak and the powerful, the poor and the wealthy we're not that far apart, ideologically speaking, at this time. And so because of this, especially in the in the sense the United States was founded on things like religious freedoms and, and whatnot, this began to foster kind of a sense of what you might consider like a moral righteousness among the people, uh, where we saw ourselves as kind of an inspiration to other countries, uh, again, very much rooted in the idea of freedom for the people. And this all of these things kind of combined then to foster a sense of national exceptionalism. Now, put that aside for a second, this national exceptionalism, and go back to, to the reason that we split from Great Britain. We had just thrown our thrown off the government of Great Britain, of England, because we saw them as being too involved. And so the people who were here, again, pretty much across the spectrum, uh, from weak to powerful, were very wary of having government power or giving the government too much power. And again, they had just thrown off a government that they saw as being way too involved in the lives of the average person. So when they set up the government, they very intentionally restrained themselves. And again, this is very unique on the world stage. There were not many countries that founded themselves by intentionally making their governments weak. You know, we had things like the Bill of Rights, which was put into place very quickly, uh, protecting liberties, lim limiting government authority. Power was split governmentally too, uh, very divided among the federal government, state governments, and local governments. And actually, the United States, because of the way that we split this up, created a, a uniquely weak federal government. And even within the federal government too, federal power was split among the three branches. And so what we have here in the United States is what's called a small government, large population, or large uh, citizenry. And this is very unique, again, on the world stage. There's a lot of uniqueness here. But it's, it's this idea that the people have more power relative to the government in the United States than in most other countries in the world. Actually, in pretty much almost any of them. Uh, and so we have a, a sense of national exceptionalism. Bring that back in. We have a uniquely weak federal government. 
and we have a government that has intentionally restrained themselves and fragmented power, not only federal, state, and local, but also among three branches, the, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And so this actually had a lot of virtues, protected a lot of liberties. Uh, it did fragment society to an extent, uh, and actually by giving everyone more power, this probably helped lead to more polarization in society, uh, which is how we kind of have our two-party system today. But this kind of very unique development structure made for a, a uniquely weak government that did not interfere much in the people. And they again, they, they did this intentionally to restrain themselves out of the these two elements, the sense that the, the country was exceptional in some capacity as an inspiration, but also from what they had just seen is what happens when government gets too powerful and too involved. Now, we're going to talk a little bit now, we can expand a little bit further going forward. As, as I mentioned, the United States developed very uniquely in a, in a unique way, developed on their own. But this actually leads to several foreign policy positions as well that we see for the first 100 to 150 years of our existence. And a lot of this is built around the idea that we had very few diplomatic ties. Now, that's not to say we had none. Thomas Jefferson was a famous ambassador to France, but the United States largely had a very small foreign policy department, a very a small foreign policy decision-making process. We were very unilateral, and foreign policy decisions that were made actually got split kind of between the executive and the legislative branches. Uh, so the president was handling kind of any sort of day-to-day -day foreign policies, whereas Congress was focused ma mainly on spending and, and wartime policy. Now, we did have some sort of trade, but mostly our economics at this time internationally was through exportation. We were what was called a, a mercantile economy or, or mercantilist economy. And this is mostly built around the idea that any sort of trade was solely designed to benefit us. So there was a lot of exporting, not a lot of importing. And this makes sense because we had a lot of open territory, a lot of natural resources. We didn't need a ton of things being imported. Uh, we did have a little bit, but it was mostly exporting. And we exported things like cotton, tobacco, various industrial goods, those sorts of things. And all of these things ultimately lead up to us becoming the great power that we have become today. But before we get to there, let's let's back up. As I mentioned, we are not, I, I don't like using the word isolationist for the United States. We weren't isolationist. We did have very few ties, but we weren't isolationist. And the reason for this, or the reason I can say that, is because our foreign policy mostly just wasn't focused on Europe. We weren't focused on the great powers as much as we were on westward expansion. And this is another thing that makes us unique in terms of our development. Most of the great powers at this time, in order for them to expand and to grow, had to expand or grow into other great powers. Again, we're talking mostly Europe here. But the United States actually expanded westward, away from all the other great powers. We had this concept of manifest destiny, which we used as kind of a moral basis for expansion westward. We had the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. That was Thomas Jefferson. We bought that from Napoleon in France. We had a war with Mexico, um, which gained a lot of territory there. The Oregon Purchase from Great Britain. We even expanded out, out into the Pacific eventually once we hit the kind of the coast with Hawaii and some of the other islands out there. We also had a policy at this time called the Monroe Doctrine. Now, the Monroe Doctrine was basically a statement that said that we were going to oppose any sort of European colonization in the Americas. And again, this kind of kept a lot of the European powers from getting too close and having too much influence. And all of these things, again, 
the economic exportation, the small or the uh, few diplomatic ties, manifest destiny, Monroe Doctrine, this essentially leads to the United States becoming what's called a regional power. Now, at the same time, you can think of another regional power that ha had similar, but uh, to a lesser extent, benefits would be Japan and Asia. They also were very uh, far away from other great powers, but they didn't have the land and the resources that we did. But we became a regional power, much like they were, where we were really the only one in that entire region that had the type of power that we did. And this led to us becoming what's called a regional hegemon. And hegemon is essentially a word in political science that is used to explain when there is one country that is so much more powerful than any of the others that they can essentially have almost carte blanche influence. Now, you can think of this on the world stage that say, like, after the Soviet Union fell at the end of the Cold War, the United States may have been considered a world hegemon. But you can also have regional hegemons. It's clear, especially during this time period, kind of the founding of the United States, once we kind of gained our power up through probably World War I or so, we were definitely considered a regional hegemon. Now, these policies, again, very unique in the world. We did not have any other countries that really kind of developed this way. Uh, especially the with the opportunities that we had to grow and expand without running into other great powers. That was a huge benefit that we had that you just don't find in other parts of the world and in other great powers. But this led to us becoming very, very powerful. And this kind of leads us, we kind of have this period of, I don't, again, not isolationism, but independence all the way up until the world wars. Now, the world wars kind of changed things for the United States, and this is where we start to see U.S. foreign policy take a big shift. Now, the out at first, I should say, the outbreak of World War I seemed to wholly validate the United States policy that we had of few alliances, no entanglements, and we actually tried to stay neutral during this whole time period of World War I. But the Germans make a misstep here, and they sink the Lusitania, if you're familiar with that story, but it's a really interesting one. We could probably do a whole episode on that at some point in the future. They also sink several American merchant ships, or they, let's just say, they attack several American merchant ships. And this really angers the United States public and really pulls us into the war. Now, this also kind of combines, or I should say, aligns with a very new idea on the world stage in international relations called human rights. And it sounds kind of funny. Most people don't realize that human rights is actually a concept that really only developed in the 20th century. But prior to this, it was very rare for people to make an argument based around individual human rights. There were state rights, and that was about it. But especially with Woodrow Wilson and the United States as a whole, becoming very concerned about this idea that people, individual people, should have the right to determine their own destinies. World War I ultimately gets pitched as a very moralistic argument. And this is part of the reason we enter the war, and this is how Wilson sells the war to the American public, is making the world safe for democracy, making the world safe for human rights. Um, very moralistic defenses for going to war. And Wilson puts out his famous 14-point plan. You know, he says all nations should respect this. I'm not going to go through all of them, but just a couple of them. He believes that people should be able to self-govern that there's freedom of the seas, open markets, etc. And he actually pushes this idea of an international body that can help enforce these principles and enforce human rights. He calls it the League of Nations. And we have that, this actually tries, the League of Nations is formed, but this ultimately fails. And a large part of the reason it fails 
is because Wilson was a little egotistical at this point, and he basically tries to form this League of Nations on his own and push all of these policies without consulting Congress, without consulting the domestic politicians back home. And Congress essentially begins to resent Wilson because they feel like he left them out of the discussions, that essentially he's trying to expand the power of the presidency, make himself more powerful, and cut the legislative branch out of the foreign policy process. So when it comes to the United States voting to join the League of Nations, we vote against it, and Congress votes against it in particular. And so this ultimately fails. The League of Nations then falls apart. Uh, it's shown not to be super powerful. Japan invades Manchuria. Italy goes into Ethiopia. The League doesn't do anything about it. States have a really hard time being convinced to deploy their own troops to remote areas they don't care about. And without the United States on board, again, at this point, we're a major world power. Other countries have a hard time justifying it, and the whole League of Nations falls apart. But this idea of an international body and the idea of something called collective security becomes a really big deal, and this leads into another organization that you're probably a lot more familiar with, and I'll touch on that in a second. Now, this is World War One. World War II breaks out because we had a lot of treaties after World War One, but these treaties kind of failed. Again, the League of Nations fails, and Hitler and Germany rise again. With World War II, the leaders of the United States, those in government, wanted us to get involved pretty much right away, but the public was very unconvinced of this. We had just seen a major world war, the war to end all wars, they said, and the public was just simply not convinced that we should go into it, and they weren't even really convinced the United States was even being threatened at this point. And again, we're so far away from all of the we're so far away from all of the other major powers that it's hard to really see the United States is being threatened. And so uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president at the time, FDR, he is very much tied to what the public wants. He listens to the public and he says, he makes this promise and says, no U.S. soldiers would be deployed into any foreign war. Now, this doesn't mean we were totally uninvolved. We did send resources and those sorts of things. Uh, but he, he makes this promise that no U.S. soldiers are going to be deployed. Now, of course, we all know that we did enter the war. And the reason for that is Pearl Harbor. Uh, Pearl Harbor is this is this huge event. The, J the Japanese attack Hawaii, and the United States people suddenly sees that hey, we are threatened by this. This is this is a truly world war. We cannot any longer stay neutral, and so almost overnight, FDR is forced to break his promise. U.S. soldiers get deployed into this foreign war, and we're not making any sort of moral defenses anymore. Wilson's idea of moral defenses for war almost gets thrown out the window, and we're essentially making very strict national security-based interest arguments for entering this war. And so World War I and World War II convinced the United States that we can no longer simply remain neutral. Our policy of, of non-involvement, quasi-isolationist, just simply doesn't work anymore in the world. And so World War II leads directly into the Cold War, and we actually see kind of a shift here again, whereas World War I was a very moralistic defense, World War II was national security-based. The Cold War is actually an ideological conflict, and we, it's pitched very much to the public as capitalism versus communism, good versus evil. You know, And after the World Wars, the United States was this kind of huge, predominant world power. We had a nuclear monopoly, massive economic output, but the Soviets were not far behind. They gained very quickly. They turned this into kind of a bipolar world. And that means there's two major powers, bipolar. 
And so the U.S. policy here becomes one of anti-communism. And in particular, our policy is one of what's called containment. Basically, we believed that the communist mindset and the, co the communist structure and system would ultimately collapse in on itself if we just waited them out. Now, in doing so, we had to contain them, basically prevent them from expanding. And that's where we get some of the, what you call proxy wars, Vietnam and Korea and, and small wars like that. Not that those are small, but smaller than say a major power war if we'd gone to war head to head against the Soviet Union. But our policy here was containment. If we can contain the Soviets long enough, eventually their system will fail and they will collapse in on itself. And to an extent, this did happen. Um, the Soviet Union did ultimately collapse in on itself. But this whole idea here through the Cold War time period, it just was very, very clear. The United States could no longer not just retreat back into our own shell. We had to participate in world politics. And there was this massive restructuring, especially during the early years of the Cold War, a massive restructuring of how the world was oriented, creating new institutions both in the United States and out. In the United States, we saw things like the Department of Defense gets created, the CIA is created post-World War II, the National Security Council, things like that. And then on the international stage, we had organizations like NATO, which was a peacetime military, it was the first of its kind, a peacetime military alliance. We also had the United Nations, and this is kind of the successor to that League of Nations I talked about earlier. This one largely succeeds, mostly because the United States joins onto it. They have, there's a couple other differences as well. I could probably do with the whole thing on the United Nations and why it succeeded where the League of Nations failed. But we have uh, five veto players, essentially the winners of World War II, the U.S., China, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. And so we had, those are, those are uh, defense and political organizations, NATO, United Nations. Also a lot of economic institutions pop up during this time point. Uh, we had something called the Bretton Woods Conference, the IMF, that's the International Monetary Fund. There was a, an organization called GATT, doesn't exist anymore, but it was the General Agreement on Trade, or sorry, on Tariffs and Trade. And the Marshall Plan, uh, all of these sorts of things. Uh, actually, the Marshall Plan ultimately helps lead to what ultimately becomes the, the European Union as well. And so we see a, a huge, massive restructuring of all of these things on the international stage, you know, how the world is structured. During this time period, we also see a lot of regional conflicts. As I mentioned, our policy of containment prevents us from going to any sort of major global power war, but we see a lot of regional proxy wars. Uh, we have the Chinese Civil War. A lot of people don't realize, but that was a pretty big deal at the time as well. You have uh, Korea, Vietnam, Cuba. These all become very important areas for foreign policy and for military intervention. And you can see here by this point, the United States has completely flipped on our foreign policy from our early years of total non-intervention to being very influential and, and intervening a lot where we see it as being necessary. Now, I'm going to just quickly run through Korea, Cuba, Vietnam, because I think these are big deals and they actually do have uh, important consequences for U.S. foreign policy. So Korea was the first. It was a former Japanese colony. Japan actually, as I mentioned, was a regional hegemon, uh, a regional power. That's why I mentioned them earlier. They actually controlled the whole Korean Peninsula and other parts of Asia. But with World War II, when they overstepped by attacking Pearl Harbor, they actually lost a lot of that territory. And so the Korean Peninsula, there's a lot of debate here over how we're going to divide this up. Uh, the communists and the Soviets, China, Russia, they wanted 
the country to be led by communists. The United States said, no way, we're, we're containing the communism. And so they had this 38th parallel that divided the country in two with the hope that they would eventually unify. But this unity never happened, and eventually North Korean forces go in, attack Seoul. This leads to war. Dwight Eisenhower is the one who eventually negotiates a treaty to stop fighting, but this was a, a devastating war. There was actually no clear victor, and actually, obviously, the country still remains divided today. And actually, they did never even signed a, a formal treaty ending the war. It was just a ceasefire, essentially. Now, long-term, the impact this had on the United States is that it showed the U.S. the importance of holding influence in developing states. It showed that uh, without our influence there, the Soviet Union in particular was going to march through these developing states and install a bunch of communist governments, which ran completely counter to our policy of containment. And so this idea led to Eisenhower actually using the CIA in several other countries as well. They're probably a little bit lesser known to try to influence the regimes there or even topple them. We saw Iran in 1953, Guatemala in 54, etc. So that's Korea. Uh, Cuba comes along next. In this case, there was a U.S. favorable regime in power up through the 50s. But Castro, Fidel Castro, overthrows this regime. And the United States becomes very concerned because Castro becomes an ally with several of our enemies, including the Soviet Union. And so JFK, John F. Kennedy, decides to try to topple Castro secretly. And so we there's actually quite a series of assassination attempts that are tried to take out Castro. They all fail. Uh, in particular, the biggest one would be the Bay of Pigs disaster, which really um, shows the world that the United States is doing these sorts of things. Previously, it was much more secretive, but the Bay of Pigs was such a colossal disaster uh, for JFK that the world kind of turns a little bit and starts to wonder if the United States should really be involved on this. And in particular in Cuba and for the communist bloc, it made Castro into a kind of a cult hero among certain crowds worldwide. And actually at this point, you know, Cuba puts nukes on their soil from the Soviet Union. This leads to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, so Cuba was a pretty massive disaster, especially for John F. Kennedy, but also for the United States during this time period. All right, that's Cuba. Vietnam. So Vietnam is where we really see the limits of U.S. power tested and revealed. Uh, so essentially, Vietnam used to be a colony of France a long, long time before this. Japan took it over. Again, this was, this was a country that Japan controlled. It was a J Japanese territory, again, pre-World War II, all this stuff. When Japan was defeated, France tried to go in and reclaim their colony. But the problem is, in Vietnam, there was a huge push for independence among the people. There's this massive independence movement. And so France decides they can't handle this. They're dealing with too much on their own home front. And so they withdraw. The United States looks at this, especially in the wake of, say, Korea, and becomes very fearful that in this new developing country, a communist regime is going to come to power. And so the United States fears what's called a domino effect, that the communism is going to kind of sweep across this area. And so we step in. The problem here is that the United States forces were unable to defeat the North Vietnamese, led by Ho Chi Minh. And this pr proved disastrous. So there's a lot of reasons that we didn't uh, defeat them, and we could go into a whole thing on that. Uh, some of them very legitimate reasons, some of them very ideological. But essentially what happens is we view this as a struggle between capitalism in the West and communism in, in the Soviet Union. But the people on the ground don't. And so there's this huge divide between what the United States thinks they're fighting for and what the people on the ground are fighting for. 
you know, we're fighting for some sort of large grand scale battle of communism versus capitalism. The people view it as an independence movement. They view it as we need independence. And so the United States could never sway the people. We could never win the hearts and minds of the population because we viewed it in very different terms than the people on the ground did. And we never really bridged that divide. And so our struggle to defeat the North Vietnamese proved disastrous. It led to a lot of problems here on the home front. Uh, in, the, in the United States, a huge downturn in support for things like intervention and the military and whatever. And so this changed a lot of U.S. policy going forward as well. Now, this ultimately leads to like Henry Kissinger and his policy of detente, which was meant to ease tensions. We see treaties pop up on nuclear arms control, disarmament, and we see China start to rise as well. And so Nixon starts to negotiate with, with Mao to get the Chinese on the U.S. side. And so we see a kind of a restructuring of what's happening here in the Cold War during these later years. Now, Nixon has Watergate happen and Carter comes in and he shifts back to Wilson's policy of, of human rights, bringing this full circle. Carter is very much in the mold of Woodrow Wilson and his 14-point plan and human rights as being a huge deal on the world stage. And so he pushes for human rights issues. He pushes for a stronger UN, a much more peaceful strategy. But Carter's policies ultimately backfire on him. We see revolutions pop up in Nicaragua, Iran. We see the Soviets move into and occupy and invade Afghanistan. And Carter's peaceful policies were seen as largely a failure because all of these things were cropping up, including, I say, Nicaragua is largely in our own backyard, and we were unable to do anything about it. And so we see the Soviets starting to, re to expand again. We see revolutions cropping up around the world. And so Carter loses power. And we elect a new president who adopts a much more forceful strategy. And this would be Ronald Reagan. Now, Reagan has a very high military buildup. We go into Grenada's and invasion. We have the Star Wars missile defense program or missile shield program. And kind of tied in with Reagan's more forceful push, the Soviets also begin to struggle on their home front, and they start to have some problems. Gorbachev takes over, tries to institute some Soviet reforms, but ultimately the USSR begins to decay, and uh, in part due to some of Reagan's policies, in part due to going all the way back to this idea of containment, ultimately um, corrupting the Soviet Union from the inside out, and they collapse in on themselves. But ultimately the Soviet Union falls, and this leads into um, Bush's tenure, which led to kind of a dismantling of their rival. And Bush, here I'm talking about Bush Sr., H.W. Uh, and so this is where we see the world st structure change again because we move from this bipolar Cold War era into an era where the United States is the unquestioned hegemon in the world, on the world stage. We're the only power anywhere close to our level of influence. Now this carries through actually quite far, uh, at least through the 90s, and probably up you know, through most of Clinton's tenure, there were some small skirmishes, Somalia, etc., Bosnia-Herzegovina, but the Soviet Union, the, or I should say, the Soviet Union's fall and their demise essentially means the United States is the power. And so there's a, a shift in foreign policy on what the United States should be looking to do on the international stage. And mostly what we decide to do is try to convince other countries that they don't need to balance power against us and form alliances, and they should join our side and not try to fight us, and they should just accept that having a unipolar world 
is the safest and most stable world. And there's actually a fair amount of evidence for that potential that a single power actually leads to a more stable world as long as that power is, is largely benevolent. Uh, so that's what our policy kind of becomes, is this kind of convincing persuasion to try to convince the these other countries not to ally against us and turn this back into a Cold War with two sides. Now this carries again through the 90s, 2001 changes things dramatically again. And the reason for this, again, this, again, through all of Clinton, and we now have President Bush, Bush Jr. Uh, so W's tenure doesn't start out this way. Uh, he actually starts very much with domestic focus, but September 11th, 2001 changes all of that. And all of a sudden, overnight, his entire grand strategy for what foreign policy and international relations should be gets flipped on its head. And the reason this is such a big deal, obviously the attack was massive and devastating and it you know, obviously killed thousand people. Uh, and this was on multiple fronts. We had New York and DC and you had the, the plane that was taken down as well by the passengers. And so this was, a, this was a huge deal in and of itself, but it actually had larger implications even for like political scientists and researchers and politicians, because up until this point, with the exception of some questions of some of these international institutions and organizations, it was largely thought that states were the only powers in the world capable of having real influence and real strength. And yet we had, for the first time, a non-state entity, a terrorist group, show that they could too have influence on the world stage. Now, admittedly, it's fairly minor. What they did was devastating, yes, but it wasn't like it crippled the United States. It didn't take us to our knees. We came back stronger than ever. We went in and invaded multiple countries, wiped out dictatorships. It wasn't like it completely devastated the United States as a whole, at least in terms of like political structure. But the influence that they wielded on 9-11 meant that all of a sudden we had to start taking terrorism seriously. And we did. As I mentioned, we invaded two countries. We overthrew the Taliban. We overthrew Saddam Hussein. Uh, we, in, we, to this day, still have troops in both Afghanistan and Iraq. We're actually now in Syria and other places too. So we took this very seriously, this threat of non-state groups. Whereas pre-9-11, non-state groups were kind of an afterthought. They were almost totally ignored in international relations. And so U.S. policy of on the foreign front suddenly starts to incorporate non-state actors. And so this is largely where we are today. We're about 18 years post 9-11 now. And this is essentially um, still a world where we are very much concerned with terrorism. And part of the reason is our invasions actually end up causing more of it. Part of it is that other terrorist groups saw the influence that al-Qaeda had with 9-11, they decided that they could do the same thing as well, and so terrorism has grown. But it also kind of fundamentally changed the way that the United States views the world, and not only the United States, that the world views the world, that policymakers, that political scientists, that researchers, that professors, that anybody in the political realm viewed the world, because all of a sudden we had this whole other category of entities on the world stage that needed to be addressed and needed to be dealt with in a very different way than, say, how we deal with, with state conflict. So it changed the definition of war. The war on terror is not what we really t tend to think of as a war. Traditionally, a war was country versus country, political power versus political power, and now we have country versus small guerrilla group. And so that's largely where we are today. 
Uh, this kind of leads up into today. Now, we had have seen a few changes. Bush's tenure was marked in part by ignoring the decision of some of these other institutions, like, say, the United Nations. Obama's tenure was kind of a shift back towards that. It was a little bit, little bit more on the peaceful front in terms of his stated policy. He put a little bit more stock in things like the United Nations and NATO and these sorts of things. Uh, but honestly, his tenure was marked by just as much war and conflict as Bush's. A lot of people don't realize, but Obama's tenure, we actually had m troops in more countries fighting more conflicts than they ever were during Bush. And so we see a bit of a shift, but not as much as you might think of with Obama. And then that leads into today with where we have Trump. And so Trump has only been in office about two years now, but uh, he has shown some disdain, again, for some of the international institutions, NATO, the United Nations, uh, for, I would argue, some good reasons, some less good reasons. But it still kind of remains to be seen what this, what impact this will have kind of long-term going forward on U.S. foreign policy. But I would argue that in terms of modern foreign policy, Trump isn't that far off of what we saw with Obama, what we saw with Bush, what we saw with Clinton, etc. And so it kind of remains to be seen what the long-term impacts of a Trump presidency on foreign policy will be. Now, with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out. That led us up until today. I know that was a lot of information, but essentially I wanted to give you guys, just kick off 2019, an overview of U.S. foreign policy from our founding, and our very unique founding, I should add, all the way up through today and how it's changed, how it's grown, what impact you know our founding has had, and just kind of see how we got to where we are today. But with that, we are going to close things down. I appreciate you guys listening. I hope you guys continue to listen going forward into 2019. I'm really excited about where this podcast can go for the new year. I recently, some of you guys may have mentioned, picked up my very first sponsor on this podcast, a company called Flipboard. I'm excited about that. I'd love to continue to expand. So if you are interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast or advertising on the podcast, please get in contact with me. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. If you are interested in continuing to follow this podcast, please hit that subscribe button wherever site, uh, which, whichever site you're listening on, whether that's iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or TuneIn, whatever, hit that subscribe button, write me a review, pass this along to tell other people about it as well. Word of mouth is huge. So I really appreciate that. If you're interested in following me, I am on Twitter. You can find me at Justin R underscore Kinney. Find me there. Follow me. Be happy to continue the conversation with you there. You can also find me on Facebook at J Robert Kinney. It's the name I write fiction novels under. I've been mentioning this a lot recently, but I actually had a brand new mystery novel come out that was published back at the end of November. Please check that out. It's called Splintered State under the name J. Robert Kinney. Uh, so far, reviews have been good. Really excited about it. And this is going to be the first in a series that I'm writing, probably a three to four book series. So love for you guys to check it out if you are interested at all in mystery novels or anything along those lines. Uh, I also have another book, just go ahead and throw this out there, that came out about two and a half years ago. It's called Precipice. It is kind of a loose tie-in to this book, but it's not quite the same series. And I would love for you guys to check, that, check out that too. So find me whatever platform you're using. Follow me. Hit that subscribe button. Pass the podcast around. And I'm really excited about where this could go going forward. But with that, we're going to go ahead and shut things down for the very first episode of 2019. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening for the last few months. And I am excited to see where this is going to go going forward. But with that, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one. Yeah.